All right, guys, you made it to the weekend. This is going to be your Friday roundup. Now, what's great about this is last week we tried something new where we actually let you know basically up front some of the topics that we're going to be discussing. Brad and Laura, Brad's wife, just raved about it. Just love the idea, love the idea that you kind of get this idea of what you're getting into when you're listening to an episode. And Brad, I think we need to do it again. Yeah, I think we're definitely doing it again from here on out. Yeah, it's funny. Laura came up to me after she listened to the episode and I don't warn her like what's going on in the episode, obviously. And she's like, that was really cool how you gave just a couple little tidbits of what you're going to talk about through the episode. So she's like, you have to do that again. It's it's imperative. So (laughs) I love the word imperative. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Today, we're going to be talking about the Monday episode, and somewhat unsurprisingly, we got some feedback on the value of the fully funded emergency fund. Chris shares his decision to pay off $100,000 in student loans since January. Jesse shares how to get the most from your library. Melissa challenges Frugal Woods on her stance on makeup, and Captain DIY highlights a career path. Welcome to the ultimate crowdsourced personal finance show. This is your Friday Roundup. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI. Your home for financial independence online. So Brad, we set the bar pretty high. There's a lot of topics to cover. The great thing is anything we don't get to this week, we can always do next week. But I thought we would start by talking about Camp Fi just for a minute. Uh, We've gotten so many requests from people saying, how do I find out about you know, upcoming events. There were eight of them this year, and I always seem to find out about them after it's sold out or after it's gone. And we've been working with Stephen, and he gave us permission to go ahead and put all the information for all the events onto one page on Choose FI so our community can find them. And so if you have been hearing about Camp Fi or Chautauqua, and you've been thinking to yourself, man, it really would be nice to meet some people, you know, in real life and get out of the daily grind for a couple of days, uh, you can go to choosefi.com slash campfi. It has all the information everything you would need to know. And it also has the links for each individual event so that you can check one out. And yeah, Jonathan, it is really neat to have all the information in one spot. You made a a really nice page. And yeah, I mean, this is definitely Steven's event, but it's just a nice, easy way to get access to when these dates are for upcoming events. So yeah, just chooseify.com forward slash camp FI. And that's one word, camp FI. And yeah, there's still two events this calendar year, so 2018, that are not sold out. There are a couple weeks in September in Little Rock, Arkansas, and there are two weekends in August, actually, in Joshua Tree, California. So yeah, if you're interested, those are really great options, and we'd love to see you out there. I'm not sure, Jonathan, if you and I will be at either of those two events, but uh, certainly we're going to try to make as many of these campfires as we can in the future. And my wife has gotten several emails from people that say, I do not use Facebook. I do not want to use Facebook. And although I'm being very much tempted to get a Facebook account just to go join a local group, I was wondering, is there any other way that I could find out about these meetups? And Danny has volunteered to 
try to start aggregating all the different meetups around the country and putting them on one calendar page. That's not live yet, but we will hopefully get something in place. So even if you don't have a Facebook account and you're not engaged in one of those local groups, you can still find out about all the meetups, more information on that to follow. But she just messaged me and told me, please include that in this particular episode because I keep getting questions about it. Got to love our new VP of operations here. Danny's doing a marvelous job. And and yeah, for those of you with Facebook, of course, the easiest way to get involved in a local group is just go to chooseify.com forward slash local. And that lists the 140 plus local groups we have throughout the world. So yeah, find your local group and join. We'd love to have you there. So Brad, let's spend some time talking about this episode with Big Earn, aka Karsten from Early Retirement Now. They were actually, even though we titled it emergency funds, I think that in many cases it was highlighting opportunity cost, the opportunity cost of working too long, the opportunity cost of not working long enough, the opportunity cost of a home versus renting, and finally the opportunity cost of emergency funds. I mean, it kind of ran the gamut of how to quantify this and then make an optimal decision based on the math. Yeah, I agree. That concept of opportunity cost or what you're giving up otherwise, that's a really important one. And you do learn that, as Ern said, in kind of economics 101, but it's really a fundamental foundational principle for life of when you're making a decision, you're foregoing something and that's the opportunity cost. So it's always important to keep that concept in mind. And we came back to the emergency fund. The reason I wanted to title it that is that honestly, there was a gaping hole in our episode titles up to this point. We really haven't had any type of an episode dedicated to talking about it. And what's interesting about that is that me and you historically have had very different perspectives on this. Uh, my, My recollection basically from like episode four and our first four episodes was that I have always been very cash light. You know, I'm paying down debt very aggressively. I don't want to wait until I get ten, dollars $15,000 in the bank account before I start attacking my debt. I want to pay down my debt. And even once I finished that, I didn't then stop and start moving money into this cash account. Instead, I started pumping all of that extra income, all that cash flow I had directly into investments. And it made sense to me, but the blind spot for me personally, because I couldn't quantify that, it just, that was what my gut told me. If someone had asked me what to do, I would have gone right back to the, okay, once you pay down your debt, now it's time to start thinking about a fully funded emergency fund because that is what the financial gurus all say. And it's just taken as dogma. I never really analyzed why I was so comfortable doing that if that was the optimal choice. Yeah. And you certainly hear that everywhere, right? That is the fundamental advice you hear everywhere is the first thing you do aside from maybe paying down like payday loans or credit card debt or something extraordinary like that is get that emergency fund fully funded. Who knows? It could be three to six months. You often hear I've even heard more than that, six to 12 months. So, but I guess it really comes back to what is the definition of an emergency fund? And that's really what Ern was getting at in this episode is what is the definition of that emergency fund? Because he's clearly not saying don't have assets or don't have access to money if there is an emergency. I mean, that it goes without saying, I, I, I should hope that that is clearly not what he was trying to get across here. So, you know, that is basically what we're going to explore in the next handful of minutes here is, is Earn's point and where he thinks there is this opportunity cost of having an emergency fund. And I guess, Jonathan, just to kind of talk about my own situation for a second is I've always been cash heavy. And 
I wish I could say that it was some intentional strategic plan because at least then I could say, all right, maybe it's not optimal. Maybe there's an opportunity cost, but at least that's my plan. But frankly, it's more just because I'm a bozo and I'm lazy sometimes. And it's just being perfectly optimal is not front of mind for me at every second. And, and there does come a big opportunity cost with that. So I, yeah, unfortunately I, do have probably six to 12 months in cash. Now that's not an emergency fund per se, but cause I've never thought about it in that regard, but, but I do have that cash just kind of sitting around in, in my personal checking savings and some business accounts. So instead of if I was earned in this instance where he's saying there's this huge opportunity cost to that cash drag, he probably would be sweeping that money out every month obviously leaving whatever buffer you need to pay your bills, but sweeping that money out and investing it monthly in whatever, let's say low cost index funds. So that probably is the optimal situation, but I've kind of always had, I guess, A, this little bit of laziness and B, some comfort with having cash lying around. So I think it would be worthwhile to explore further. You know, I think one of the things that almost everybody that gives their opinion publicly is guilty of at some point or another is making a all encompassing blanket statement, which is never true. I mean, that's one of our biggest criticisms of Dave Ramsey is that it's a very one size fits all message for a very multidimensional personal problem of personal finance. And I think what we have the opportunity to do with this second episode is explore some scenarios. So let me explain in my case, like why it would make sense for me. I have a very high savings rate of, you know, 20, 30, 50%. And I'm talking now a little bit historically when I was in this role of a pharmacist. And at this point I've paid down all my debts. And even when I was paying down my debts, if I did have an emergency where I had incurred somewhere in the vicinity of five to $10,000, I could easily just slow down my debt repayment I could very easily take advantage of the 30-day credit card float. I have probably $5,000 at any given point just in my checking account. And honestly, in my mind, that $5,000 is not in a conditioned bucket per se, but rather it is cash flow. It is moving expense, being able to pay all my bills from month to month, you know, and and never having to worry about getting so close to the line that I'm going to have to worry about an overdraft or something else like that. And I wasn't investing per se, but I was putting every extra penny that I had towards paying down my student loans. I knew that if I incurred five to 10 grand in expenses, I could come up with a plan over the next one to two months to solve that situation by either drastically reducing my lifestyle, by taking advantage of a credit card flow. And I suspected just because I had simplified enough other aspects in my life that it was a relatively low risk that that would happen. You gotta, you need to kind of play it out versus various scenarios. And you've just said, Brad, that you were just being a bozo. I love that you haven't used that word in like over a year. Now you used it for the first time and you applied it <laughs> to yourself. It yeah, it full back. circle, baby, full circle. But I think in your case, like to almost give you to maybe justify that, even if you weren't even thinking about it this way, you were an entrepreneur and you were an early days entrepreneur where your revenue was by no means fixed. There was a little bit more uncertainty in your life. You didn't have the steady paycheck and the steady career path. And maybe an aspect of this has to be how secure are you in your job? Like you get the sense that Big Earn is incredibly secure in his job. He doesn't have to worry about disappearing when he walks away. It's going to be based on his choice. And I think maybe is, the, do you think that that plays any part of it? Yeah, I think somewhat, 
But I, I think Ern's larger point, and while I appreciate you kind of giving me a, a little out here, I, I want to really stick it to myself, essentially, which is Ern's larger point is the emergency fund or lack thereof for people in the FI community who have assets and don't need that cash lying around. That's the whole point. It's while I agree with you that my income as an entrepreneur is is very uncertain. And in my scenario where I'm I'm a little bit frightened, I do like having cash. You know, and that's that's my mentality, but that's a weakness, I think, because Earn's point is I have plenty of assets. And if there was an issue, I could sell equities, sell my index funds at Vanguard and transfer that money over to my checking account. So there's a logical fallacy here, right? It's, oh, I need this safety, but I have the money in an index fund. I can just sell that at any given moment. And probably, I think within 48 to 72 hours, I could have that money sitting in my checking account. So there's this illusion that you need this quote emergency fund at any given instance. And I think that's where I got caught up as well. And frankly, like you were, you were talking like, oh, what if I had a five to $10,000 emergency that I needed money instantly? But I, I've been struggling for weeks to even come up with what that emergency would be that you couldn't pay with a credit card. Essentially. I, I just don't know. Jonathan, can you think of anything, right? If you had a medical emergency and you didn't have, and for whatever reason you had to lay money out, you could pay with a credit card. If you had your car broke down, you could pay with a credit card. So obviously we're not talking about people who are down to the wire with no assets. Earn and and we here in this example are talking about people in the FI community who have assets. So if you had an issue where your car broke down and you needed a new engine or something for a couple thousand bucks, you put it on your credit card, you sell some equities, transfer the money over and pay off the credit card, right? So you don't need that money sitting in a checking account or a savings account as an emergency fund. So that's the argument, I think. And yeah, I mean, just in my case, I was just lazy or too worried about being conservative and, and quote unquote safe and really earn definitely helped me look at the world a little differently. You know, I, I can't leave this that quickly. I think that this is an important conversation to riff off in different directions and explore the perimeters of of how you actually apply this to your life. Let's talk about some other some other things that are going on in the background here. This is not anti insurance. This is not saying that you shouldn't have an emergency fund and you shouldn't have insurance. Like we, I have car insurance. I have homeowners insurance. I have health insurance. I have term life insurance. You already have these guardrails in place that have some form of a deductible. So if something really bad happens, you know, what is that max out of pocket? So you've kind of limited your out of pocket damage already by paying up front for these various services. And so really what you're talking about in many cases with an emergency is how do you make it to that deductible? I so I, I think sometimes we think, well, you could have a 30 or $40,000 damage to your home. Well, in many cases, that's what your homeowner's insurance is for. And the other natural place that this conversation has to go is, well, where does that emergency fund have to be? Because if you're thinking, all right, well, I am no longer going to have 20 and $30,000 in my checking account. So I'm going to move all of that into my 401k. No, 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 my friend, that is not what we are saying because that money is locked up and is more difficult to access. So you need to really think through what is my actual strategy? Cause you don't want to incur this 10% penalty unnecessarily when you don't have a plan in place for it, because now you're having a crisis. Notice that Brad actually has money in investable taxable accounts. It essentially is like a checking account. It just may take a couple extra days to access and 
And instead of it going sideways, you're basically locking in no return. You have the potential to get six, seven, eight, eleven, twelve percent in the market year over year. And then the other scenario that comes to mind, Brad, and I'm just going to read this directly. John put this on our Facebook group and he was really just trying to play devil's advocate and come up with a scenario in which you really would want an emergency fund. So he's basically doing you a favor, Brad. You've been racking your brain for the last couple of weeks trying to come up with one. This is the scenario that he pieced together. He said, let's go with the extreme. And I just want to pause on that. It really does require an extreme in order to really justify this, which is a very interesting point in and of itself. But he says, we'll go with the extreme of a market crash and a person who isn't yet confident in their career loses their job. They are hesitant to pull from the market when it's low, which increases anxiety. Their lack of confidence shows up in a job interview, which are far and few in between as the market is down. Floating money on a credit cards and racking up debt and your HELOC works until it runs out. This person finally settles for a job and now has a bunch of debt plus interest plus fees to pay off. Making nothing on your money in a savings account sounds better than paying high interest on credit card balances at this point. The steady cash balance may also have a positive psychological effect when interviewing for a new job. Brad, I think you touched on a bunch of these points already, but I'd love for you to redirect that to this particular statement. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting scenario, certainly, that John brought up. And obviously, we're not saying don't have any money in your checking or savings account. I think certainly Earn, I'm assuming, has, let's who knows, three to $8,000 just lying around to pay random monthly bills. So I assume that if one lost their job, you would have some money lying around. We're not having, you know, $20 in a checking account here. So you have some money certainly to pay bills for a month or two. So that that immediately comes to mind. But also you really have to come up with these extreme scenarios like John's describing where this person's lost confidence, they can't get a job. I mean, it, that's while plausible, I guess, you know, once every 15 or 20 years, you don't you don't plan for the the once every 15, 20 year event and lose the opportunity cost, right? And I think that doesn't suggest, and I'm not saying don't plan for for crazy life circumstances. That's why we have insurance, as Jonathan just said. But the issue that Earn would argue is opportunity cost, right? So he said that even, if, and I'm gonna paraphrase, even if the stock market drops significantly, the rise up from the original investments along the way may have already put this money higher than it would have been, even with the drop than it would have been if you just had it sitting in a savings account earning essentially nothing. So I think that is another thing that that we often don't consider. So if you have money sitting in a savings account month after month after month, you know, for years on end, it's earning maybe what, 0.1% interest, 1% if you're in an online bank. So it's really essentially nothing. And whereas if you had it invested in the stock market over a period of years, and then you get this downturn, well, you still might be higher than you would have been otherwise. So I think there are lots of ways to look at this, but I guess really under the frame of opportunity cost is the most important way. And at the end of the day, this is not us dictating on high that you have to do this, that having $20,000 sitting in cash is a catastrophic issue because someone like Fritz from Retirement Manifesto would come on and say, hey, I have an entire year's worth of expense sitting in my bucket one. Right. So he doesn't feel like there's a problem with that. So you have to do what you're comfortable with, of course. But I think Earn's perspective, again, it opened my mind to, hey, what are these mythical emergencies that I keep worrying about, that I'm keeping this cash drag in my entire portfolio going? 
for really essentially no reason. So that is my biggest takeaway is what are these emergencies that I can't float with credit card float, a paycheck with 50% savings plus, as Ern talked about, my brokerage accounts. And like Ern said, a, a HELOC is another option. So I don't personally have that, but you know, those are a great way to get through emergencies, right? And then the opportunity cost. So those are my two big takeaways. Now, this next step, you know, as you kind of build this out, somebody's listening to this say, okay, you know, you kind of piqued my interest with the episode on Monday. And now I'm actually, I think I might take action. Maybe I'm going to reduce my fully funded 50K that's been sitting in this account, maybe down to 20K, 10K, 5K. You know, like I kind of want to, I want to move in this direction because this makes sense to me. You know, what do I do? Do I just dump all of that money in the market? Like, Brad, this is frankly aimed at you. You've just said, I think this might be a blind spot and I think I might consider shifting. And you've indicated that you have a significant cash position. If you were going to take action on this, like what practically, what would it look like for you? Are you, would you dollar cost averages? Would it go all into stocks? Would you do some sort of stock bond ratio? I think our audience would like to get a little bit more specifics on where you would see this going for the person that is cash heavy, but is considering changing. Yeah, Jonathan, that is a great question. So this is obviously very pertinent for me since we recorded with Ern just a couple of weeks ago and I've, I've been thinking about this. So yeah, I mean, for me, I kind of have three different options and I'm not sure what percentage I'm going to take of, of any of the three, but I guess the most obvious would be to move this cash that's sitting there into my Vanguard taxable account. Now that doesn't mean I need to purchase all my index funds on day one because I'm not sure if that would be my answer, but I can move it in there and then put an automatic investment basically monthly, or I, I think they let you do it weekly or bi biweekly. So you can do it on essentially whatever schedule you want and do this automatic investment and just kind of take my brain out of it. Right, Jonathan, we've talked over and over again, how the biggest impediment to investing, and I've seen it in my own case, right, with this cash drag is your own brain just getting in the way, trying to overthink things, right? When we had the mad scientist on, I think he brought like what his hockey pass, his hockey number into it, <laughs> right? It was some kind of crazy, crazy thing like that. And, that and it's just gone straight up since then. Have you looked at the market <laughs> since that number? <laughs> right. But isn't that amazing? Like, you know, you have people like Brandon who obviously know the numbers, but he's still susceptible to it. I'm certainly still susceptible to it. So I think from my own level of comfort, and I know Laura's level of comfort, we would not just dump a huge amount of money into our funds on day one. Now, I think the math would suggest that you should, and that's way over my pay grade, but we can certainly link to articles or put them in our Facebook group, but the math suggests just put it all in. But my psychology, that would not work terribly well. So we would do some type of dollar cost average over the course of months, but again, I would set it up automatically. So it just, it took my brain out of it. So that would be one option. Uh, Jonathan, we've talked about rental real estate and I'm contemplating buying rental real estate actually. So I might use that instead of having this cash drag, use that as a down payment on a rental. So that's something we're considering and also maybe potentially paying down debt. So while that's not as sexy or as high value as, as the other two items, but maybe paying down some of my mortgage, or I've talked in the past about how we had that real estate investment. And I use that, that term very loosely because it was just a idiotic move that I made a number of years ago. 
on a basically vacant piece of land. It, it was speculating. It was stupid. And, uh, you know, I have been paying for it for a while. Maybe I pay down the debt on that. So those are all much higher value and much higher return than the money just sitting there in cash. So, yeah, I'm kind of contemplating some variation of, of those three items. Sounds completely reasonable. You know, I've had instances where I've both dropped a significant chunk of cash, like I think it was like twenty to 30000 all at once. But that was more in a situation where it was a rollover. So it had been growing with the market and it was from my traditional employer and I'm now rolling it into a IRA. In that case, you know, you're basically just rebuying it within an interval of about a week or two of exactly where it was. It did not freak me out that I was just going to be buying it all in on a lump sum. I can say that if I had cash that had been sitting to the side, I would probably, that might hurt a little bit more. It's very painful when you're cash heavy to then get back into it all at once. So whatever it takes just to take action and get moving, I totally get that. I think it would also be useful to explore a couple other maybe short-term scenarios. Uh, Jennifer had a question on the group and she said, right now we put money we are saving for a car into a savings account. We plan to purchase in two to three years. Would you put that into a Vanguard instead, even though we're going to be withdrawing it in two-ish years? That's a perfect scenario. I mean, this is what we're talking about. Now we're looking at abbreviated timelines. You know, we never know what the future is going to hold. The market could crash tomorrow. But I think that if you look at this as a bet over time, if you make the choice to put that money into a low-cost index fund where it is able to grow and basically keep up with the market. Now, we know the market can be unpredictable. It can it can go up and down. But I think that time has already proven that more times than not, it is going to grow faster and grow quicker when you give it a chance to do its thing inside of a low-cost index fund as opposed to locking in the stagnant returns of your checking account. Now, having said that, we have kind of referred to the average market returns of being around 8%. That's just what we use. It's a super rough rule of thumb and it's just based on historical returns. It doesn't predict the future. But obviously when you compress that timeline and you're talking about 12 to 24 months, that is much less certain. And so I thought this was a great question and I reached out to Big Earn uh, to get his input on maybe not what the perfect answer is, but what he would do if he were presented with this exact scenario. And he says, for a two to three year horizon, I'd still keep a portion of it, 30 to 40% in stocks, and I put the rest in bonds or CDs. So what I love about this, Brad, is that he's so consistent. He basically creates a micro portfolio to represent timelines that he might actually need it. And so if he's going to need it in a very short period of time, he gives some of it a chance to be aggressive and grow and and he locks in, albeit a lower return, it's a more consistent return with bonds or CDs for that period of time. And by doing that, he's basically getting the best of both worlds, not as much volatility and certainly more returns than you would get with your checking account. Does that sound like a position that you would land on as well? Yeah, I mean, that's very reasonable. And and it ties into a quote that Ern said in the Monday episode, which is, quote, I view our whole financial situation as one large investment project, to paraphrase. And that is why I'm not a big fan of this bucket system. And I guess he was, you know, we were loosely talking about what Fritz does or what many people do about putting different items into different buckets, like the emergency fund and yeah, X, Y, and Z. So I, I thought that was a really interesting quote that it's this large investment project. And in this case, he's saying, okay, this is my goal and I need to tailor my investment strategy for that goal. So I think, I think that is, is a pretty wise way to do it, to understand that over a two to three year period, you don't know where the stock market's going. So we suspect over a 
40 to 70 year period that we know where it's going and that it's going up. And, you know, this is based on historical returns. Obviously, we cannot guarantee that. But that is what our strong, strong belief based on all past history is. That said, over two to three years, you can't possibly know that. So to be 100 percent in equities, if you absolutely have to make a significant purchase, whether that's, I guess, in this case, a car or a down payment on a home. Now, would I be 100 percent in equities on every dollar I had if I personally was had this major purchase that I knew was going to happen? No, I wouldn't. But for me, I would probably be stupid and have it in an emergency fund. But Earn's suggestion is much more logical, which is tailor the investments to the timeline. So maybe put some money in CDs or bonds or whatever, and maybe give a percentage of it that opportunity to be in equities and grow even more. So I like that. I think that's a, a great really middle road, but I don't that's kind of a silly way to put it because it's it's the most intelligent road. So, yeah, I'm definitely in agreement with with Earn's thought process there. And there's so many banks that offer dramatically better returns than what you're getting currently. You know, if you really are looking for a short-term place to park money, I know that at least as of 2018, Texas Bank was offering a 2.5% rate of return on balances up to 25,000 Texas residents only. Uh, Consumer credit unions, you were earning up to 4.59% if you had a credit card attached to the account as well. And that's on a balance up to $10,000. So you can actually do research and find bank accounts that will hold these smaller dollar amounts at a high enough rate of return that it might actually be worth it to, to consider that. Other people look into strategies like doing short-term online CD ladders. Uh, and this is an idea where maybe you have a, a CD that has a term of maybe three to seven years and you do the minimum amount needed to capture that guaranteed rate of return and then you open up a new one and another one and they're kind of staged each additional year. So you create this staggered ladder effect where you're, they're coming back to you on somewhat of a regular basis. I don't know if I would do that. It sounds too complicated. sounds unnecessary. But those are options that are out there if you want a more creative solution for short-term money that you don't want to park inside of an investment account. So that was a pretty, in my mind, that was a pretty comprehensive, thorough look at this concept of what to do with emergency funds. You On this show, you have two individuals that have approached it from a very different place. I kind of gave myself a pat on the back because Earn just validated what I was already doing myself. But I will say that I would never have given this advice to anybody else. I just kind of took it at face value that it worked for me. And I think it's interesting to sometimes analyze why you're doing something and put a reason behind it because it gives you just a little bit more confidence with your path. Now, that's not to say that this episode didn't come with some challenges, right? We always try to present the other side, and Paul submitted a voicemail contesting Earn's definition of an investment with regards to housing. This, and for the record, this is a debate that will never end. Is your home a good investment? There will always be another side to this, but I think the conversation's interesting. So I'm going to go ahead and play this voicemail that we got from Paul. Hey, Brad and Jonathan. And hi to Danny, since she's probably the one actually listening to this. Congrats for officially joining the Choose FI team, Danny. I look forward to meeting you someday. The episode with Big Earn today was really good, I thought. I like challenging conventional thinking, even as it applies to the FI world of that tends to be nonconformist. So big kudos to Carson for his pending retirement. It might be fun to keep track of how many people Choose FI has inspired or empowered to air quote, retire early. I've personally helped a few people quit their jobs and I've found it extremely rewarding to know that you've helped someone launch their freedom. Regarding the conversation about whether or not your 
primary residence is an investment. Carson said he considers it an investment because the user gets a benefit, or I think as he put it, a a dividend, a non-cash dividend. I personally side with J.L. Collins that a primary residence is not an investment, at least not unless you're you're generating income doing really cool things like house hacking. But I do very much agree when buying a house or really anything else, there is this exchange in value. But I prefer not to call that an investment. It's really just an expense. I dig a little deeper into this subject on a two-part series on, on the podcast that I have that Choose FI listeners might enjoy. I can share the links with the community if you think that they might find it useful. In summary, I, I think it's a slippery slope to refer to all expenses or any expense as an investment. It might be semantics. Certainly, we, we spend money with an intent to get back something equal or greater value for our situation. But when I invest money, I do it to get more money back for that investment. And housing is interesting because the fact of the matter is we all need shelter. So we have to spend some money in order to satisfy that need. How you do so is obviously a personal choice. I just balk at the idea of referring to it as an investment because I fear it creates this attitude that we can spend more or spend what I want because it's an investment. You know, I can upgrade to the next bigger house because I'm investing. No, not really. In most cases, you're just buying a bigger expense and you may get more perks to come along with it, but you're not getting more money or uh, you're not getting a bigger monetary return by doing so. Great topic. And I'm looking forward to Brad's uh, rent versus buy use case. Thanks, Paul from Ready Investor One Podcast. Well, first, Paul, thank you so much for calling in the voicemail. And I know Brad is a huge fan. He's listened to your episodes and we'll definitely link to that two-part series in the show notes. Brad, I love that he mentioned the case study because Earn just customized the Excel sheet and sent it over to us. I think it is going to rely on how well you've actually tracked your expenses. Is that something that you're going to be able to follow through on? Yes, I hope so. That's the plan. And I know, yeah, on the Monday episode, we promised that we'd try to get it done for this episode, but that just based on the timeline proved impossible. But yeah, I am going to make my best effort, I assure you all, to make this happen. And yeah, we'll report back on a future Friday roundup for sure. And yeah, Paul brings up brings up good points. And I understand what he's saying about maybe it's semantics, but I don't necessarily think so. I, I fall in line with with his way of thinking in that it's kind of like the HDTBification, if you will, of America is that like everything about your house is your biggest investment. So if you put a seventy thousand dollar kitchen in your little three bedroom house, it's an investment. Well, maybe it's an investment if when you go to sell it that brought back more than $70,000 in return. But if you're just doing it to have a fancy kitchen to impress your friends, and it really added $20,000 worth of value because you're in a real estate market or a block or a community that doesn't support that type of kitchen and that value, well, that really wasn't a great investment, right? And Paul is a real estate investor. So I, I think he's looking at this under the frame of what is a true investment? Would I put money into this as a business? And I think that's where my distinction comes in. Like real estate investing is investing if it's truly a business that produces cash flow and a return. And I understand obviously Earn's point about this is not just throwing money away and that the other side of the coin is, of course, you would have had to have rented otherwise. So there's clearly more consideration here than most people put into it. And I think if I could put words into Ern's mouth, I think that's probably what he's trying to get at is look at all the numbers, including, again, 
aha, that opportunity cost, right? The opportunity cost of, hey, I would have had to have rented a house or an apartment in this same location. So that is the crucial part of looking at this. But yeah, I mean, I guess I personally fall on the side of if I'm going to call something an investment, especially where there's some active manner of it, it has to be looked at under the prism of business. And is this business making net income and cash flow in the case of this real estate? So yeah, I mean, that's my thought process. Jonathan, what do you think? Yeah, I I don't look at my home as an investment. I mean, I just can't. It's just, it is an expense and it's a place to live. And and I buy one and you may even be tempted to buy more than you need for uh, for other benefits. But I never con myself into thinking that, you know, it's an investment. And I think that's what we were fighting against. And I think that it's just kind of so many people think they have to buy the home because that's the key to make it into the, I guess, the middle class or the upper class or whatever class it is that you're striving for. And it's just not, it's not a necessary piece of the puzzle. Now there's certainly people that are home investors and have figured it out, but I definitely, I don't think they're going into it with the same mindset as the retail buyer. It's just two different perspectives. I mean, when you talk to Scott Trench, that is an investor and he's doing the math differently. And I think they're looking for different things than you're looking for as a homeowner moving your family into a house. Now there can be overlap. People do house hacking. There is a way to do it, but I just think the two get conflated. And I think what Paul is saying is it kind of, that mimics my own internal thoughts as I listen to that. I think that Earn is right to make a lot of the points that he made, but Again, it comes down to the fact that you'll be better off when you view your home as a place to live and you decide that you're okay spending more and recognizing that it's more of an expense for some of the other lifestyle benefits that you feel that it offers. Just don't don't call it an investment, you know, because don't don't trick yourself. Invest in things that are good investments. And it and it could be a house. It's just probably not your home. Well, that's pretty deep. It could be a house, but it's probably not your home. And yeah, most people really do. They think of their own primary residence as their biggest, quote, investment. But I think many people in the FI community who have significant investable assets and a better understanding of what is an investment and what's not and how to approach a financial life where you have a huge savings rate, I think their biggest investments are well outside of their primary residence. So, you know, the the conversation is always slightly different for the FI community and non-FI community. But yeah, I mean, Jonathan, to your point earlier, there's no simple answer to this when it comes to, to housing and personal residences. People will argue about this for the next thousand years. So it's just always good to just give a little bit of flavor and give your own opinion. So I think it's it's valuable nonetheless. Well, as long as we're challenging messages from past episodes, I would love to play this voicemail that I got from Melissa. And I want to say that my wife felt like I threw her a little bit under the bus with that episode that we did with Liz from Frugal Woods when we were talking specifically about makeup. And Melissa also wanted to challenge Frugal Woods' stance on this. So let me go ahead and pull this up. Hi, Brad and Jonathan. This is Melissa from California. I just finished listening to episode 65 with Liz of the Frugal Woods. I really loved the episode, but wanted to chime in on the segment regarding makeup. I totally agree with Liz that the societal pressures put on women and girls to appear a certain way are extreme, and that no one should feel forced to wear makeup. However, I also don't think that women who enjoy makeup should feel pressure to give it up on the journey to Phi, or ashamed to admit that they like it, and that's kind of how I felt after hearing that segment. I don't wear makeup because I feel insecure without it, or because I'm afraid that people will think of me if I don't. I love the creative and technical aspects of makeup, and probably more importantly, I love that it provides me with a ritual where I can take time for me each day. 
Sure, I could probably fill that time with something else, but doing makeup brings me joy. So much so that when I hit FI, I started a side hustle doing makeup, and I ended up getting hired by a makeup company that I absolutely love. In a way, I felt sort of judged when I heard this episode, because I think many people, especially men, think of makeup as frivolous and don't place any value on it. But for many women, it's a source of pleasure and joy. Ultimately, I think if women want to wear makeup or not, they shouldn't be judged or shamed for that decision. Thanks for listening. Looking forward to the new episodes. Brad, I'm very strong on not shaming people for anything, right? I mean, that that messaging from Melissa is absolutely perfect. And I think that's the balance. I think that Liz brought up an incredibly valuable point. And I think even Melissa nailed this as well, that there is societal pressure that as a male, you don't recognize and that women feel constantly. And I think that's what Liz was addressing. But there's a counterpoint to this. There's balance to everything. And when you're talking about it from a perspective of value and joy, it makes sense. And I think that my wife probably feels this exact same way. Yeah, it absolutely does make sense. And and clearly, Jonathan, you and I are very out of our depth here. And I don't want to make any kind of pronouncements on for women or for makeup or any of this stuff. But this is a great counterpoint. And I guess my my response to Melissa would be always follow your joy, always follow what makes you happy in life. And please don't feel judged. I don't think that was Liz's intention in any way. I think she realized this was a crutch in her life and and reading it in the book was was more impactful than just hearing her talk about it for a minute or two and i'm not sure we did the greatest setup in the world on on that particular segment on the podcast but this was a significant issue in her life and her overcoming that was a huge huge mental positive for her and it was a big step forward in her own life and her own journey to happiness as she has it today. Whereas, Melissa, if you've found happiness in the artistry of this makeup and now you have this this job from it, I mean, that's amazing. That's absolutely fantastic. You should be thrilled. So please, I don't think Liz and certainly Chuzavai were not saying this is the way you do it. You have to throw out all your makeup. That's not it at all. It's Liz overcame something that was a real hurdle for her. And I commend her on that. And and I'm sure you do as well. And I also commend you for following your passion. So Brad, I think with these Friday roundups, we're really starting to hit our stride with getting these great tidbits that talk about all these different aspects, all these different unique life optimization strategies, the health hacks, the college hacks, the career hacks, they all come together on the show. This next one I want to play is actually from Captain DIY, who has started writing at Chooseified. And in many cases, he's focusing on highlighting the value of trade schools. This voicemail speaks to that. Hi, guys. Timmy and Crawford here, or as I'm known internationally by my three readers, Captain DIY with DIY Defy. I wanted to talk about something that ties into the idea of getting to the $50,000 income mark, but without incurring high student loans in the process, and that is skilled and licensed trades. I am an electrician and I work for a university making just under $60,000 per year. I went to a vocational school after I realized that the career path I was heading down just wasn't for me and I am now in as, as a secure job as possible with side jobs being thrown at me faster than I can manage. Here's an anecdote I wanted to share with you. The other day I was in a workplace learning class and we were asked what we had done over the weekend. When I explained that I had been working for myself on side jobs as an electrician, I was immediately asked by the instructor and two of the students if I had a business card I could give them. I got three potential new clients right there. I also find that whenever I meet someone new and they ask me what I do, my reply is almost always met with joyful exclamations of the jobs they need me to do for them. 
As both myself and Phi Trades Guy write about on the Choose FI blog, the trades not only provide steady, well-paid work along with incredible side hustle opportunities, they are also on the cusp of an extreme gap between positions needed and available workers. The trades population is aging, and the emphasis over the past couple of decades on college degrees has created a major shortage. In other words, there is a fantastic opportunity waiting to be seized. Granted, I am still trading my time for money, at least for this particular income stream, but I can command a lot more money for my time as a licensed tradesperson, and that really helps bump up the savings rate. I know a lot of people are wondering how sending their kids to college will fit with their FI plans, and I want to remind people about another option. Just thought I'd let you guys know that, and I appreciate what you what you all are doing over there. Thanks a lot. Bye. So Brad, these are the types of voicemails that I literally have goosebumps on my arm when I hear because this is the the untold story, right? I think one of the things that the FI community, and honestly, Mr. Money Mustache has done such an amazing job at is highlighting the fact that it's just simple math. And the opportunity cost of me spending four years getting my bachelor's degree, four years getting my pharmacy degree, and then four years to pay off my student loans to get back to broke, that's 12 years. And your life has been delayed. You're starting at the age of 32 and you've got this great salary, but at what cost? And if it's just simple math and you remove your identity from your profession, you know, I think so many of us, we start with, what do you do? It's some sort of silly hierarchical system that really doesn't serve anybody. But if you can move away from that and focus on, there are a million ways that I can get a job that pays 50,000 plus dollars a year. And then it's basically, we've, we've said, once you can get to a 50% savings rate, it's a literally a 10 to 15 year path to FI. So if you start at 18 with a $50,000 a year job and it starts there and moves up by the time that I finished paying off my student loans, you could basically be done. I mean, you're just, your path is set. You're done. It's literally that simple, but because the world we live in is so murky and unnecessarily complicated and marketing has such a stranglehold on our lives People are starting at 35, 36, 38 before they even realize how simple it could be. Yeah. And these trade professions can be very lucrative and they're also extremely important jobs. I mean, I couldn't be an electrician if my life depended on it. I can barely change a light bulb essentially, right? Like I was thrilled when I was able to change out a doorknob in my front door. I mean, how really pathetic is that in the grand scheme of things? But, but I'm trying, I'm trying to learn belatedly in, in my late thirties now but man, I wish I had those skills when I was 18. And yeah, you talk about opportunity costs. That's in your case, 12 years and hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of dollars of tuition just really to get back to Brooke. It is amazing if you had started 12 years before in a profession like an electrician or a plumber making a really nice salary with the ability to have side jobs. You're right. How quickly would you have been to FI? So, and Tinian's point about trading hours for dollars essentially is, is an important one, but, but who knows, maybe he can take the five skills that he learns from just being in the community, listening to Alan Donegan talk about pop-up business school and start his own business. That's not inconceivable as well, where he can take strong business background and turn it into something where he doesn't personally have to trade his hours for dollars and he can hire people to do it and just Make sure, you know, what do you, when you call an electrician, what are you always concerned with? They're not going to call you back because they're busy or maybe they don't have the organizational system 
or they're not going to show up for an estimate. And of course, that's painting a broad brush, but but you hear that over and over again. And I suspect that's because, again, people are busy. There aren't enough electricians and maybe they don't have the system set up. That particular person doesn't have the system set up to operate this like a true business. But maybe Tinian can look at it like that and say, all right, I know what the most important things are and what are lacking in the business acumen of other electricians in my area. And I can start a business directly in response to that. I think that would be brilliant, right? So there are plenty of options, but not least of which is getting started at 18, making a nice salary and saving a lot of money. You know, and if this piqued your interest and you're thinking, wow, I, you know, two trades guys that are in the FI community that are writing specifically to people that might be open to vocational trade skills, how can I find out more information? Captain DIY and FI Trades Guy both write at choosefi.com. And there's actually over 30 people that are telling their story and their unique path to FI at choosefi.com. You can get all of the latest articles. If you want, if you subscribe to our email list, you'll get them in your inbox once a week. Or if you want to just read them on the site, just go to choosefi.com, click on the tab that says latest articles. You can get them all there. I'll also put a link to Captain DIY's articles in the show notes for today's episode. So you guys know that we've partnered with Robert from thecollegeinvestor.com uh, to focus on the student loan debt movement, the goal to pay off a million dollars in student loan debt in the month of March. And I got this voicemail this past week from Chris, who has paid off $100,000 since January. I cannot wait to play this for you. Hi, Brad and Jonathan. My name is Chris. I'm from PA, but living in New York. I'm a psychiatry resident, and I wanted to talk to you about your student loan debt payoff initiative for this month. So uh, I was turned on to Choose FI by uh, one of my cousins, and uh, ever since I got into it, I've gone through the episodes at a furious pace and really consumed a lot of other FI resources as well. Since the month of January in the new year, I've paid off $75,000 of my student loan debt. Now, I put myself through some of college and Temple Medical School, which was one of the most expensive schools in the nation at the time, and was about $400,000 in debt uh, or approaching that number. But with, uh, you know, savings and a couple of large payments that we're able to make, uh, I was able to push that under $300,000, which feels at this point to me like a much more manageable number. I was also in public service loan forgiveness. But due to my experiences with uh, Fed loan servicing and the concern that the program will get axed eventually, uh, not trying to be too much of an alarmist, but for me, it seemed like the risk was too real and that I wanted to have more control over my financial future. And, uh, you know, it would be about uh, seven more years for me in the program of hoping that nothing really changed. So this uh, change, uh, while it might not be the best financial move for me, was definitely one that was very beneficial psychologically in my understanding and ability to feel like I can influence what my life looks like. And I think that listening to Choose FI had a large impact in that. So I don't know if this can help the initiative for a million dollars for the month of March, but at the same time, it is about a hundred thousand dollars, you know, since December, January. Anyway, thanks. Really enjoy the show. So Chris, first of all, congratulations. And in my book, you get a hundred percent credit. That is incredible, incredible progress. Some people will just have their jaws on the floor because they didn't even realize you could have that much in student loan debt, but 
I assure you that I have seen that and more, and it is a scary world out there with student loans. With regards to the student loan forgiveness program that you referenced, we're actually going to be speaking with Travis Hornsby from Student Loan Planner in a few weeks, talking about the pros and cons, maybe delving into that idea for people that hadn't heard of it before or are interested in more information. There's a lot of strategies that are in place, and I love that you mentioned the possible risk of it going away. We'll address that in the particular episode that we do with Travis, but I think that you landed on this idea that you wanted more control over your financial life now. I was in that same position when I made the decision to pay off my $168,000 in student loan debt. And I have never looked back with any sort of regret on that. So I completely get it. Uh, For those of you that are interested in participating in the student loan debt movement challenge, just go to choosefi.com slash challenge. It's a simple form. You'll put your information in there with how much you paid off specifically in the month of March. You can always go back and update it if you made a payment and you want to get credit for it. And Robert has been super helpful knowing that kind of as a community, we love this idea of doing a challenge together. He agreed to, at the end of the month, if you reference that you heard about the challenge from Choose FI, he's actually going to aggregate our numbers as a group and give them back to us so we can share on the podcast how much we paid off. So if you want to be part of those totals, when you go to choosefi.com slash challenge and you update your form, there's a box down at the bottom that says, tell us quickly how you did it. And as just anywhere in that box, just mention choose FI and that'll let them know to include you in our group's totals. I genuinely believe that with the motivation that this group has and the the ability to start focusing on putting aside 20, 30, 40, 50% of your income to pay down debt when you want to, we could make up 50% of this. I have no doubt. So let us know if this is something that you're getting benefit from, if having a challenge is making this more enjoyable. You know, in my mind, looking back, there is never a single day that I regretted paying down extra on my student loans. You may have buyer's remorse from that latest gadget that you bought, but you never regret reducing the balance on your student loan debt. And it's fun that we can do this together. All right. So this last voicemail that we're going to play today is actually from Jesse. Now he's submitted a couple other life hacks in the past. And this particular one is how to get more from your library. As you know, choose FI friends of the library, going to print the bumper sticker at some point, but this is just awesome. And it is fully encompasses the features that you probably didn't even realize were available. Hey guys, it's Jesse from North Carolina. Um, I wanted to call in today to talk about hacking your library because the library is just a tremendous source of information, entertainment. It's just amazing. Um, So in terms of entertainment, what I've learned is that the library has tons of apps now. So you can get Hoopla for streaming movies, Overdrive for reading books, um, Libby, which gets you access to books from thousands of libraries. Uh, Zinio will let you read magazines. So you don't have to no longer have to have subscriptions. Uh, they also have DVDs of the latest movies and television shows. They have iPads to check out with games for kids. The other really interesting thing that we've used the library for is that they also have um, contracts with free legal software similar to LegalZoom. So normally these include estate planning documents, landlord-tenant documents like leases, and business startup documents. And these documents are all legally sufficient, which is why the companies feel comfortable making them available to the general public. So you shouldn't be afraid to use them. You can save tremendous amounts of money not using you know, an attorney for these documents. So anyways, uh, hope that helps. And uh, thanks again. The show is just awesome. If you're listening to this and you're a librarian and you are aware of some of these features that your library offers and you want to confirm this, just leave us a voicemail or send us a message. We'd love to share it on the show. But I know that you know it's one of those things that... 
when you're a librarian and you know all these resources that you have available and you're thinking to yourself, why aren't more people taking advantage of this? I would imagine it's pretty good to hear that there are a few people out there that have realized it and hopefully we can spread the word. And yeah, Jonathan, I love Chooseify Friends of the Library. There's no question about it. I know this past week, that was a little daddy and daughter time I had with my youngest, Molly. We just went to the library for like two hours and just sat there and read and just explored different books. We read a book on volcanoes and space, and she wound up grabbing a couple books that she found in a series she wanted to read. So it was just like a neat time. The library is just a wonderful place and saves our family certainly thousands of dollars a year. I mean, we just take out really hundreds of books between all the kids' books and the books that Laura and I read. So huge savings. And we haven't even delved into all these amazing apps that Jesse talked about. So I suspect there are significant ways that we could save even more. And I plan on looking into it. So thank you. And do you put your library return dates on your Todoist list? Uh, that I don't do. So that's a great question. <laughs> I probably should, but uh, Laura actually handles the library. Oh, so she's way she more gets, optimized than you are. Like yeah, she makes you look good. like a rookie. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. All right, guys. Well, unfortunately, that's going to bring this episode to a close. Now, as you know, we like to finish every episode by doing a drawing for a copy of a book that we have found useful. We have three books that we normally do. We do J.L. Collins' book, The Simple Path to Wealth, Dominic Cortuccio's book, Design Your Future, and Vincent Puglisi's book, Freelance to Freedom. If you would like to enter the drawing, it's super simple. All you got to do is just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes, follow the written instructions there, and leave us a short written review. And then just send us an email to feedback at choosefi.com, letting us know that you left a review and what screen name you left it under. We had uh, William, who actually helps us out on the Facebook group. He sent us a message saying, guys, you really need to add on to this that you are available on Stitcher. Not everybody has access to iTunes or wants to download iTunes in order to give you a review. And I'm sure there there are people that would like to have another way to leave a review and enter this drawing. To which I respond, you are absolutely right. And it's a failure on our part not to update that. But obviously, if you don't have access to iTunes, you don't use iTunes, you're on Android. The only other site that really aggregates reviews is Stitcher. We'll we'll set up a short link at the bottom of choosefi.com slash iTunes and then just Go ahead and leave us a review there and same deal. Send us send us an email with your screen name and we would love to enter you in that drawing. So Brad, how many winners do we have today? All right, Jonathan, we have one winner today and the winner is Emily. And she said, new things to learn every time. I started my financial growth journey a few years ago and was recently introduced to Chooseify through a Facebook group. This podcast has been super binge worthy and I am enjoying the opportunity to learn so many new things that just never occurred to me before. Can't wait to get to Fi. Thanks for doing what you do to help those of us on the Fi journey. Fire on. Thank you so much, Emily, for sending in that review. And to the listeners out there, I hope you're getting value from these episodes. It's a blast to put them together for you. And I promise we're learning right along with you. It's a lot of fun. The fire is spreading, my friends. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.